Thank you, Jeff. Musicians, good to see you in the new year. This is the first time I got to see you this year. How about that? I'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We began our study in Daniel at the end of last year, and we took a break for the Christmas season to celebrate the birth of Savior, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to pick up where we left off in chapter 4 of Daniel. And this passage, this chapter, really is about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's pride, um, a sin you'll see in a moment that God really hates. Uh, God hates all sin, but he identifies pride as one that he particularly uh, hates. It's offensive to him, and Nebuchadnezzar had pride. Now, this passage, this chapter, takes place uh, in the mid-6th century B.C., uh, you know, Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., and so uh, this happened a little, a little later. God is the one who allowed Babylon to conquer Israel and uh, take them into captivity, and God allowed that as a chastening uh, for their sin. The covenant God had with Israel was that they would obey him and obey his laws and, and live for him, and he would be their God and bless them, but they forsook him. And so God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to conquer and really make Israel a vassal state in the beginning, and then eventually destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But in this process, some of the Hebrews were taken captive back to Babylon. Uh, Daniel and his friends, as you know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all taken back to Babylon. And those men, Daniel and his friends, were chosen to serve in the king's government and his administration. And of course, Daniel... Uh, served there along with his friends. And you know from earlier in our study that God gave Daniel a, a special gift, the ability to interpret dreams. And Daniel exercised that gift early on, interpreting a dream that the other experts of Babylon could not interpret. And then he was promoted uh, to prime minister of all of Babylon, and he served uh, under the pleasure of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now this chapter, as I just mentioned a moment ago, is about God humbling this great king. And I want to say a word about, about pride for just a moment. We talked about it in our Bible study on Wednesday night, but here we see a, a case of it, a, an example of it. Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant pagan king. He was prideful. He was boastful. Uh, and, and probably his biggest mistake you'll see in a moment is he actually challenged God. Uh, when men challenge God, it usually doesn't work out well. Uh, when men set themselves against God, it never works out well because God uh, is God and we are not. And so in this chapter, we find this man who set himself against God. Now, God hates sin in general because sin is offensive to his holiness, his nature. In fact, we know when we read the Bible that God will have no fellowship with sin. He'll have no fellowship with that which is impure and unholy. You say, well, how does God have fellowship with us? Because when you come to Jesus and we confess our sin, he forgives our sin and he takes it away and Jesus places his righteousness on us so that we have perfect fellowship with the Father. If you've never received that gift of grace, you should receive it today. You should ask God to forgive you and be saved today. But the Bible says specifically that God hates sin. Now, Solomon listed seven sins that the Bible says are particular abomination to God. Now, I would suggest to you humbly and to those who are watching online, uh, if God specifically identifies sin that is an abomination to him, you might want to put that on your list of things not to do. 
You might want to say, well, you know, if God particularly hates those things, let me make sure that I don't do those things on purpose, that I don't, that I don't pursue those sins. Proverbs 6, beginning of verse 16, you know this passage. Listen to this. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Here's the list. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who spreads lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. The first one on the list is what? Pride. A haughty look, eyes that boast before God. God hates that. I would, for us as Christians, as those who are born again, look at the last one, those who sow discord among the brethren. Just because we're saved doesn't mean God doesn't, doesn't hate our sin when we break away and do that which we should not. This is an important list. First on the list, of course, is pride. Now let me give you the background of how Nebuchadnezzar came to the place he's at in this chapter to be so proud. You'll remember in chapter 2 uh, in our study, I know it was five or six weeks ago, so I'll probably have to help you here, okay? Um, let me just remind you what happened. God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream of a statue, remember, of a man, a huge image. He called in all the experts of Babylon, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and the magicians and all the people who were supposed to be able to tell him what this dream meant, and they could not. And then he threatened to kill them all, and Daniel God raised up Daniel, gave him the gift of interpreting dreams, and Daniel said, I can get to the, the interpretation for you if you just don't kill us all yet. And so he gave a reprieve, Daniel prayed, him and his friends had a prayer meeting, and that night God gave Daniel the same dream and gave him the interpretation. So Daniel went in and told him, King, this image is God's revelation to you about your kingdom. You're the head of gold. There's no kingdom like you. You're the first in the list, and you have a great kingdom. Well, about that time, Nebuchadnezzar must have been patting himself on the back, feeling pretty good about himself. I'm the head of gold. And then Daniel said, oh, but your kingdom won't last forever because there's going to be another kingdom that will replace yours that's made of silver, that represents silver. And, and then there'll be a kingdom of bronze that will replace the silver kingdom. And then there'll be a kingdom of iron that will replace them all. Well, that's the part Nebuchadnezzar didn't like. You say, how do you know he didn't like it? Because in the very next chapter, what did he do? He built an image, and he put it on the plain of Dura, and he told everybody going to worship, except there was one difference between the image in his dream and the image on the plain. You know what it was? He made the whole thing gold. Now, what was he saying? He was blatantly saying to God, thank you for the dream, and I like the part about me being the head of gold, but I don't like the part about my kingdom ending, so I'm just going to make the image all of gold, indicating my kingdom's going to be forever. Now, when he did that, what was he doing? He was saying to God, you might be God, but I'm telling you, I don't like your revelation and my kingdom's never going to end. How do you think God responded to that? Chapter 4, okay? Look at verse 4. This is a lengthy passage, but for context and for understanding, many of you have read it before, and if you haven't, I'll read it to you. You won't even have to work, okay? The words will be up on the screen. We're going to read down to verse 18. So you follow along. Now this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and you're going to find out what happened to him right here. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. So in the beginning, things were going just lovely, okay? Verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, 
And the thoughts on my bed and the visions in my head troubled me. So God gave him another dream and, and, it, and it upset him. Verse 6, Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 7, Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me the interpretation. So he did the same process again. He calls in all the experts. I had this dream. Now, the only difference here is he was willing to tell them the dream. They still couldn't give him the interpretation. So look at verse 8. But at last, Daniel came in before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. Verse 10. Now these were the visions of my head. While I was on my bed, I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and cut off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Verse 15, Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him. Now there's your first clue, by the way, that this is about a person, not just a dream because there's a him and there's a personal pronoun. Let him graze with the beast of the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living, now here it is, here's the purpose, may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Some dream, right? I think the reason he was afraid is because it was the he and the him in there. And I think he had a really sneaking suspicion that he was the he and the him in there. And so he wanted to know what this dream uh, meant. Now it's a dream of a tree. And this tree was huge and robust and prosperous. And the animals lived under it. And the fruit of the tree fed the animals. And the birds lived in it. And the tree represented his kingdom. If you read the, the rest of the chapter, we're not going to read all of it. The tree was him. It was his kingdom. And the kingdom, of course, is always connected to the king. So it was him, the kingdom, and the kingdom was flourishing. And everybody in the world was blessed because of the greatness of the Babylonian empire. And so that's a dream. But then the troubling part is a watcher, a holy one, one from heaven, a messenger. And a messenger would be sent by God himself. He said, cut the tree down. Strip the branches off of it. Strip the leaves off of it. Scatter the birds. Scatter the animals. Ruin the tree. But don't kill it all the way. Leave the stump. Put a band around it and leave it for seven periods of time. Now those seven periods of time are generally agreed on as being seven years. 
Now here's, here's what God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel comes in. He tells Daniel the dream. And if you read the interpretation from Daniel there, Daniel was hesitant to tell him. Daniel didn't want to tell him because he knew it was bad news. And the king saw Daniel, and the king said to Daniel, I know your heart's troubled. I can see it on your face, but don't, don't hold back. Uh, tell me the truth. Tell me, tell me the news. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was in essence saying, give me the bad news, because I know it's bad news, but just pull the Band-Aid off. Give it to me. Uh, let me know what's going to happen. Now, let me just ask you this real quick. And we didn't read it, but Daniel was hesitant to give him the interpretation. Why was Daniel hesitant to give him the interpretation? Give him the interpretation? Well, number one, he knew it was bad. He tells him this interpretation is for your enemies. They're going to rejoice. But let me just throw this in. I think Daniel had a compassion for this man, had, had in his heart, knew, knew the whole plan of God, and knew that this man needed to be saved. And I think Daniel was sad that God's judgment was about to fall on his life. And it bothered them. Can I just make a quick application there? When we lose compassion for people who need Jesus, we need to check ourselves. When we, when we fail to be sad over people's lives that are being destroyed because of sin, we need to really check ourselves. Because see, really think about it. Like Daniel and like all throughout the Bible who have a relationship with God and you today if you're saved, by the grace of God, we know the truth. By the grace of God, you're in. You get it? I mean, you're in. You're, you're, you have eternal life. You have a place in heaven. Jesus is preparing you an eternal home. You're in. Can I say there's a whole lot of people who are out? There's a whole lot of people who have no idea that they're out. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king who worshiped many gods, who had his own gods. And Daniel would try to teach him about the true and living God, the one that he's dealing with. And we're going to talk about this phrase, the most high one in just a moment. But Daniel had compassion for this man, and Daniel wanted him to be saved. Now, that's an interesting thing, and I don't have time to fully un unfold it, but think about this. This is the man who carried Daniel away from his home. This is the man who destroyed his home, destroyed his city, destroyed the temple, destroyed everything the Jews held to be precious in worshiping Jehovah God. Daniel had every human reason to hate this man. Daniel had every human reason to despise this man, but he didn't. He loved him and had compassion for him and cared for him. I can tell you firsthand, we need to pray for that, for those who hurt us and those who offend us to be able to love them, because that's what God teaches us to do. That's what God did to us, and that's what Daniel did for this man, uh, for this king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel has a recommendation <clears throat> for Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him the news. King, God's going to take the kingdom away from you for seven years. And God's going to drive you out. In other words, God was going to give Nebuchadnezzar a mental illness of some kind. Now, I've read uh, doctors and theologians who have tried to identify what mental illness he had. And I don't know, okay? I don't, I don't think they know. But here's what I know, and for seven years he ate grass like an oxen and he barked at the moon and he, you know, grew fingernails and his hair grew long and he was, lost his mind. So whatever was wrong with him, he lived out in the, you know, out in the woods like animals and he did that for seven years. But God 
in judging him, gave mercy and would restore him after seven years. And so Daniel gives him the, gives him the news. Hey, God's going to drive you out of your kingdom. God's going to take the throne away from you. And I'm sure Daniel elaborated. I mean, God had Daniel record what he recorded. But I just got to think, Daniel looked at the king that had such a relationship. He's the second in command in all of the kingdom and said, look, God's upset with you about your pride. And God's going to judge your pride. And he gives him a recommendation in verse 27. Look at Daniel 4, verse 27. Now, here's Daniel's recommendation. Therefore, O king, in other words, because of this dream, because of what God is about to do, let my advice be acceptable to you. Well, what's his advice? Break off your sins. Break off your sins by righteousness. Be righteous in your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. What is Daniel saying there? There's a word for that in the New Testament. It's called repentance. He's saying to the king, you know what you could do, king? You could confess your sin to the God who's, who's going to bring this thing on you, ask him to forgive you, and then give evidence of repentance by doing right instead of wrong. Does that sound familiar? It's as New Testament as it gets, isn't it? He's saying to the king, turn away from your sin. Turn away from abusing the poor. Turn away from being so proud. Turn away from, from, from blaspheming God with your sinful attitude. Now, let's talk about repentance for just a minute. Because it is interesting to me that of all the things Daniel could have said to the man, that's what he said to him. Look, maybe, maybe uh, there's grace enough that if you repent of your sin and turn away from it, God will forgive you and lengthen your prosperity. God will preserve you from this thing. You know, that's an interesting thought too. This is free, it ain't in my notes. You, you know what you find in the Bible a lot of times? God pronounces judgment, somebody repents, and then God repents of the judgment. Now, God doesn't repent like us. Don't, don't misunderstand that. But do you understand that in the Old Testament and the New Testament and throughout the Bible and throughout human existence, there is tremendous grace with God. Amen. The one thing that turns on the spigot of God's grace is a humble heart that repents and turns away from sin. Every time, without exception. Listen, I, I think if... if, if uh, if, if Caesar and Pharaoh and all the, all the enemies of the Bible that you, that you read and, and uh, uh, all, the, all the, the, the people who turned against God in the Bible and all the wicked people that you find in the Bible that are like nemesis of goodness, if, if any single one of them would have repented of their sin and asked God to forgive them, they would have gotten saved, Amen. regardless of who they are. So Daniel says to this great arrogant king, hey, my recommendation is that you confess your sin to God and repent, which means humble yourself and turn away from your sin. Let me talk about repentance for a minute for us and what it means in the, in the life of the lost person and in the Christian life today, just very quickly. Repentance, number one, doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect. Sometimes I think that scares people off. You say, well, man, if I repent of my sin... I know I can't repent because I may do it again or I may sin this sin again or this habit may have me or this, this addiction may have me. No, listen very carefully. Repentance is a hard attitude. It's more than an action. 
Okay, now it has action connected to it, but it's a hard attitude. And here's how it works for us today. The day you got saved and the day I got saved, it's kind of, in, in whatever your, your circumstance was, this is how it went. You recognized that you were lost and that you needed to be saved. And that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you would never come to that realization. But in the moment of that realization, when you realize through the grace of God that you were lost and that you needed a Savior, that your sin was bad and, and, you know, and there's hell, and you, you keep, begin to get the whole realization of the thing, it created in us, those who were saved, it created in us a repentant heart. And, and what that is, is a willingness to say to God, this is where humility comes in, it's a willingness to say to God, God, the realization that I just came to through your word or through the sharing of the gospel or through a sermon or however you heard it, is you're right and I'm wrong. And what you say is absolutely right. I, I, I have offended you with my sin. And then the repentance part is to say to God, would you please forgive me I put my faith in Jesus to forgive me, and God helped me to not do what I've been doing. That's a repentant heart. In other words, I don't want to continue on this road of sin. I want to, I want to change my direction, and I want to walk with God, and I want to live in a way that honors Him. Now, the rhetorical question is, can we do that perfectly even after we're saved? And the answer is no. I continually have to confess that I fail God every day. I continually have to say to God, God, I, I, you know, I messed up again. I, I thought wrong. I said wrong. My attitude was wrong. My heart was wrong. I, I have sins of omission. I didn't read my Bible as much as I should have. I didn't pray as much. All of that stuff, okay? I know you probably don't struggle with that, but some of us struggle with that, and so we have to, we have to confess. Well, connected to that confession even after we're saved is, a, is an attitude of repentance, isn't there? That, God, I don't want to continue to do that. I want to do good. I want to do right. Let me give you some illustrations of what repentance looks like in reality in some lives. And I've met people who have had these situations. I knew a man one time who was addicted to alcoholic beverages. He was, he was a drunkard, and he, would, he, he confessed that to me himself. He said, I was a drunk. He said, I couldn't put it down. It had me. It had a hold of me, and I drank every day. And he said, and I couldn't get free from it. But God brought a catastrophe into his life, and he shared his testimony with me. God brought a, a, a catastrophe in the life of one of his children, and his child was about to die. And he told me he got on his knees in a bathroom in a hospital and poured out his heart to God and said, Lord, if you, you know, I know that this is all connected to me and my sin. He said, if you'll spare my child, he said, I'll, I'll turn away from my sin, and, and I won't, you know, I'll turn away from the alcohol and listen, now God doesn't always do it miraculously like this. Sometimes a drunkard would need medicine and help, and, you know, sometimes it's a, a longer process. But from that day when the man prayed, God spared his child, made it through the surgery, lived. He never touched another drop. I mean, you know, he would tell you uh, God delivered him that day. Uh, and, now, what happened right there? You say, well, you know, that's just kind of a weird thing. No, that's a repentant heart and the power of God to change a person. And that's how repentance works. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar should have done. Let me give you some other illustrations. In, in life, there's all kinds of habitual sins we could, be, we could be guilty of. I mean, the list is long. I was writing in my notes and how to do this without trying to be too offensive to somebody. But the truth sometimes just cuts straight. You just got to gotta live with it and deal with it, okay? So if, if one of these areas is offensive to you, well, maybe that's because you need to deal with it, okay? 
In life, I've known throughout my military career, I knew adulterers, men, men and women who were not faithful to their mates. Now, what would repentance look like in that situation? It would be the person confessing to God, my infidelity is a sin and I'm not going to do it anymore. That's what repentance would be. You see, there's no value in saying to God, forgive me for cheating on my mate and then looking for somebody else to run around with, right? Because God knows in your heart you weren't really true about it. I've known throughout my military career fornicators and people who slept with everybody they could, you know, get to stand still for five minutes. I mean, I just knew men who were, who were just given over to immorality uh, and the Navy back in those days was pretty conducive to that. What would repentance look like in that life and in a life of a person today who is immoral and pornography or whatever the case that might have a hold of their life? It is to confess that sin and say to God, I don't want to live that lifestyle anymore. And the power of the Holy Spirit, just as he did for my friend who was an alcoholic, the power of the Holy Spirit can deliver us from any sin. The, the one thing that's always missing is a willing heart to say, God, this is sin and to repent from it. The, the plague of our society today, homosexuality, what's the fix for that? For a person who's trapped in that sin, it's a sin like any other sin, like any other immorality sin, like adultery or fornication, to say to God, God, this is a sin because you said it is. And God, my repentant heart says, no matter if I'm attracted to this sin or not, God, deliver me from it. Just like my friend was attracted to alcohol, just like uh, an adulterer is attracted to, to uh, adulterous affairs or a fornicator or pornography, whatever the, whatever the trap is that Satan has used to trap a person's life, repentance is the key to getting set free from it. Saying, God, I don't want to do it anymore. God set me free from it. doesn't mean the person will be perfect from that point on, like my friend. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a habitual liar, a hypocrite, a blasphemer an embezzler, a thief, name it, because we're all guilty of sin. And we all have weaknesses. But I'm here to tell you the key is what Daniel told this man. Hey, would you, would you turn away from your wickedness? Perhaps there's grace that God will lengthen the prosperity of your life. Man, that's good advice. That's good advice for anybody. That's good advice for everybody. Christians and lost men and women too. Now let me deal with this. Someone will say, well, you know, uh, I'm a pretty moral person, Pastor. I don't have any habitual sins that I know of. Well, there's one right there. Okay, we'll just not, you know, we'll just deal with that. Well, here's the issue. Even for people who look pretty moral on the outside, you know, don't have any, you know, not an adulterer, fornicator, faithfully don't kick the dog or the cat or you know, don't do anything that anybody would say is wrong. What does the Bible say about us? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So even the person who looks pretty good on the outside, still pretty corrupt on the inside, right? Remember when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders who looked really good on the outside? Now they were, man, you want to talk about if religion would get you to heaven, them guys would be in. Problem is, it won't. Jesus said, you guys look like a bunch of painted graves. You're really pretty on the outside. All the weeds are plucked and the flowers are laying up there and you painted and you look really good, but on the inside you're rotten. On the inside there's dead stuff in there. Why? Because we're all dead on the inside spiritually. And so repentance is needed. Repentance, even for a moral person, is to say to God, I don't measure up. Forgive me for trusting myself. Because that's what happens when a person thinks they're moral. So all that to say, Daniel's advice to this king who's about to get hammered here, we're going to read it right now, 
was good. And if he would have listened to Daniel, I am of the opinion God would have never, God, you know, God would have saved him and he wouldn't have had to go through the seven-year deal. But here's a thought. How many of us have had to go through the seven-year deal before God got our attention? Probably a lot of us, right? So Nebuchadnezzar's about to go through the seven-year deal. So now look at his failure. Look at verse 28. <clears throat> and this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, you might want to mark that. 12 months, okay? At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, now here it is, is not this great Babylon that I built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? I bet Daniel was scooting away from him about right there, right? Like, man, I'm not standing next to you because something bad's about to happen right here. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, verse 32, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Let's hone in on the 12-month deal real quick before we talk about the rest of it. Do you get that? From the time the dream came and Daniel told him what was going to happen, nothing happened for 12 months, a year. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar was thinking? Maybe God forgot. Right? Nothing's happened. I mean, Daniel said something bad is going to happen, like I was going to get driven out and nothing's happened. 12 months, a year. Hmm, be careful. What does 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 say? God is not, what, slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness. Why did he give Nebuchadnezzar 12 months? Because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to, what, repentance. Isn't that what Daniel told him? You see, here's the thing, here's the real deal. God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months because God's gracious. God gave him 12 months because God's merciful. God gave him 12 months because it was 12 more months of hanging around with Daniel and Daniel speaking truth into his life and influencing him 12 more months that the word might have its effect upon his heart, but it didn't. And so in the end, Nebuchadnezzar gets up on top of his palace and he boasts about how great he is, about his glory, and about his might. And God said, no, big boy, it isn't your glory we're worried about here. It isn't your strength. And so God executed the sentence on him. Now, if you read the thing, go home and read the whole chapter. They did drive him out of the palace. He had some kind of insanity. And, and, and the amazing thing is, and I think Daniel had something to do with this being the number two in the kingdom, Daniel guarded his throne for him, and Daniel didn't let them put him out permanently or kill him. I think God had Daniel there to do that, and there's a lot of speculation about that, uh, but for seven years, he was not the king. And amazingly, the kingdom didn't fall apart. 
Maybe he wasn't all that important to start with. What do you think, okay? The kingdom carried on just as it did and was preserved and all of his people stayed there. Now, here's his testimony at the end before we close. Look at verse 34. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after the whole thing has happened. Notice what he says here. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed. Now, notice the change here. Immediately, and listen, I think immediately when his consciousness came back to him, the moment he regained his sanity, what's the first thing he did? And I blessed the Most High. Didn't take him long to figure it out, didn't it? Okay, his sanity comes back, he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he's able to what? Able to humble them, put them down. I love this passage. Man, I, I tell you, I like the book of Daniel, and this is probably one of my favorite chapters. You know what you have right here? You have a pagan king who was full of himself, a pagan king who had many gods, a pagan king who thought he could do anything, and he met the real God. And when he met the real God, he got a whole different view of life, didn't he? I want to I show you one last thing before we close. Throughout this chapter, <clears throat> there's a, a name for God here, a term referring to God that you don't find in a lot of other parts of the book. It's in there, but it's really honed in here, and it's the most high. You see this phrase, the most high, the most high. Nebuchadnezzar kept saying it, the most high. The first time this connection of words with regard to God was used to identify God is in Genesis 14. Now watch this, it's really good. What happened in Genesis 14? Abraham fights Keterleomer, you know, recovers his nephew, gets all the stuff back, and when he comes back, he meets somebody. This, this guy that you, that you read about in one little place in the Bible and you don't read anything else about him, he meets, meets this guy named Melchizedek, right? Now, you know, it's funny in seminary, they want you to write about Melchizedek, and you got about that eh, many verses. So you don't, you know, not, you know, you got to come up with some stuff to write about him. But what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, he's a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, and Abraham meets him. What else do we know about Melchizedek? He's the priest of who? The Most High God. Same, same phrase now that Nebuchadnezzar is using to describe God. And so when Abraham meets Melchizedek, who's a high priest of the Most High God, which that's a, whole, that's a whole interesting thing too, because when we think of God in the Old Testament, we always think of Jehovah God, the covenant God in relation to Israel, don't we? I mean, that's what we always think about because God brought in humanity, flood, uh, you know, then calls out Abraham or the Chaldees and, and makes a nation. But you know what a blessing this is? You know what, you know what kind of revelation this is? Listen to me. God had men and women who loved him and served him had nothing to do with the Jews. God had men and women around the world who knew who he was, just like Melchizedek, and were a priest to him. 
Well, that's good news, you know, because God loves everybody. And so we got this, this Gentile, Melchizedek, who's a priest of the Most High God that Abraham gives tithes to and shows obedience to as the lesser to the greater, which is talks about later, Paul wears them out about that. But the point is, Melchizedek is this Gentile guy who knows God, who knows he's the Most High God, who's saved. Now what do we get? And we get to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now we got another, another high-powered pagan king who didn't know God, who now knows God, and what does he call him? The exact same thing, the Most High God. Why? Because they had a plethora of gods. They had pagan deities like you wouldn't believe for every single little thing. They had deities that were half fish, half man, half animal, half this and half that and half man. Man created all these gods. And the realization Nebuchadnezzar came to after God dealt with him was, hey, there's only one God who's alive and rules the world and the universe, and he's the most high God. I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved. And I believe when we get to heaven, we better look him up. There's a lot of people in the Bible that I want to talk to when we get to heaven. How about you? I mean, don't you just want to sit down with them, like I said before, hang your feet over the side of heaven and say, sit down right here for a couple hundred years because I got a bunch of questions, man. I got a, I got a lot of stuff I want to know that, you know, didn't get filled in in the Bible. I got some curiosity that I think now is the time I can find out what was going on. Don't you want to talk to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, man, what did you think as soon as your mind came back to you? He's probably got some testimony, you know. Like, man, God got a hold of me, didn't he? He sent me out there to live in the, in the bushes and the grass, and he said, boy, when I got... And you know what's amazing? From this time on, there's nothing else about Nebuchadnezzar in here. Nothing. He finishes the rest of his time as the king and goes to heaven. He steps off the pages of human history, having been saved, did his part, God used him, and moved on. Well, what more could you want in life, right? Live your life here as a Christian, as a child of God, do the thing you're supposed to do, and just step off the pages of human history and go right on into heaven? That's a great example for us. Let me close with this. Pride is a, um, I would say, pride is the root of all human sin. It is, it was the first sin in the universe, Satan, pride, the covering cherub. It's no accident that we are prideful, that we are filled with self, selfish, more self-concerned most of the time than we are about others, because Satan is the ruler of this world right now, and that's what he does. I saw a billboard, and I shared this with the class Wednesday night. By the way, if you're not in a Bible study class, you ought to come on Wednesday and be in a class. I saw a billboard in our travels over the holidays, and I know, I know what the sign was trying to say. It had a young lady standing there in some kind of you know, forceful personal attitude, and on the bottom it said, love yourself first. Well, that's the world's mindset. Love yourself first. That's not what this says. This says love God first. Then love other people. And then there's, if there's any time left over, then you can maybe love yourself. Now, that doesn't mean not care about yourself or your value. You understand what I'm saying. But we are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. Let me ask you this morning. God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to respond is God dealing with you today?
Is God dealing with you online today? How long has God given you? How long has it been since God started dealing with your heart? Could I say kindly, don't waste your opportunity. Don't wait until God has to bring the hammer. Why don't you humble yourself now and be saved? How about that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and all that it teaches us. God, if there's a man or a woman, young person, boy or girl online watching us or watching this video or here today, and God, you've been dealing with their heart and they need to be saved. God, right now, would they just humble themselves with a repentant heart and ask you to forgive them, confessing their sin, Lord, with a heart that desires to do different, a heart that desires to be led by the Holy Spirit, God, to be conformed to the image of Christ, a repentant heart. Lord, if someone needs to be saved, I pray right now, right now in this moment that they would do that. Lord, they would cry out to you right where they sit, right where they stand, wherever they are, on the couch, in a chair at home. God, may they just cry out to you right now. God, you're right and I'm wrong. I'm a sinner and God, I've, I, I, my sin rules my life and I don't want it to. God, I want you to save me and set me free. God, you'll save them. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you in any way, you come on the first verse.